Hello and welcome to another episode of Balanced Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today is our second episode of this special format, and I'm super stoked to introduce our guest. Dr. Nick Norwitz is a returning guest and host of this special episode. Dr. Norwitz completed his PhD from the University of Oxford in neurometabolism and is starting his medical training at Harvard Medical School. He has an incredible and fascinating health story about osteoporosis, the Boston Marathon, ulcerative colitis, and more, which you can check out in episode 100 of our show. Dr. Nick Norwitz, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me here, Casey. I'm excited for this conversation, and I think Going forward, especially for this one, Nick is perfectly fine, uh, given that we have an actual medical doctor with us, who I will now let you introduce, but a, a friend of mine, uh, who I'm, I'm super excited to be talking with. Uh, so am I. I'm super excited to introduce our next guest, Dr. Chris Palmer. Dr. Palmer is a Harvard Medical School physician, researcher, consultant, and educator dedicated to improving the lives of those suffering from mental illness. He has extensive experience and expertise in psychopharmacology, psychotherapy, and alternative treatments for psychiatric, (laughs) I knew I'd screw this up, psychiatric disorders. Too many big words, man. I don't know how you do it. He is pioneering the use of ketogenic diets as treatment for mental and metabolic disorders. Dr. Chris Palmer, welcome to the show. Thank you. And feel free to call me Chris too. Uh, (laughs) So uh, no need for formality, but uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and uh, to be with my good longtime friend now, Nick. so this is awesome to be That's here. That's great. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show, Boundless Body. Dr. Norwitz will be the host of this episode, just like he was last time. I'll be here uh, to ask a few questions, but other than that, Dr. Norwitz will take point. Um, and uh, yeah, we understand, Chris, you've got somebody to introduce to us today as well. I do, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, but we have the privilege of being joined by a man named Brett. And he, uh, the quick story is that he had... Um, a psychiatric disorder for many years that he has essentially treated. Some might use the word cured. I'm going to use the word treated effectively with a dietary intervention. And uh, it has profoundly changed not only his psychiatric symptoms, but his life. And I'm going to welcome Brett to the show. And I'm going to let Brett um, or Nick through some guided questions kind of help us learn more about Brett and his story and his diagnosis and symptoms and what diet he's doing and all of that. Well, thank you so much. It's a privilege to be here with such learned people. And uh, I appreciate appreciate the opportunity to share my story. I'm 60 years old. I'm a musician. And uh, I was mentally ill, suffered from horrible chronic severe depression, anxiety, and insomnia for over 40 years of my life. And uh, I was blessed to learn about this wonderful way of eating, currently called the carnivore diet, uh, three years ago in 2018. And July 16th, I began consuming only animal protein and fat. And today is day 1054 of living this way with zero cheat days. And I am 100% symptom-free. That's how I describe it. I have no symptoms. I lost my depression symptoms the morning of August 9th of 2018. They have not returned for one moment since. 
I five months after I began this wonderful way of eating, the anxiety was resolved entirely. I have no anxiety problems. If I get anxious now, it's an appropriate anxiety. A loved one in the hospital, something along those lines. And uh, the insomnia was resolved gradually on a steady decline over a 10-month period. Every aspect of my life has been dramatically immensely improved since I adopted this wonderful ketogenic way of eating. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I'm super excited for this conversation. I think it's a pretty special one because there are a lot of voices. It, it's, it's hard to, you know, suss out the, the signal from the noise um, in social media and on the internet. And I think the reason I, I just love Dr. Palmer is that he's one of those people that walks the line really well and is really respected by a lot of conventional practitioners, but can also, you know, be open-minded and, and communicate and hear and think about cases like yours. So um, I, I think this, this episode will have broad appeal. I'm quite excited. I want to start a little bit. I, I just want to rewind a little bit, uh, Brett, and, and have you tell us about, you know, when you started struggling with these problems and, what um, things you tried uh, prior to trying a carnivore diet? And then why did you try a ketogenic or carnivore diet? Well, I, uh, I, looking back over my shoulder now, since I've gotten well, I've determined that I started experiencing symptoms, sleep disruptions around the age of 15. I was an angry, depressed person. I had an extreme dissatisfaction with life. I wasn't good enough. Nobody else was good enough. A uh, little delusional as time went on. You know, you know, if I just got this coffee cup, my life would be so much better. And to at great expense and aggravation, that coffee cup might be acquired. And after I had it for five minutes, I could find a hundred things wrong with it. And why? It was a piece of crap. Uh, and my dissatisfaction just grew ever deeper. And this, this angry dissatisfaction sat on top of this vast pit of shadowy darkness and sadness and rage that was just a horror show. Um, I, I was oblivious to the fact that I was sick. Nobody around me thought I was sick. They thought I was just a disagreeable person. I was voted class grouch in my graduating class, not surprisingly. Um, and I worked in my 20s in the mental health field. Um, I've heard it said that a lot of people get into mental health because they've got something they want to fix. Well, I didn't think I had anything I needed to fix. Um, and uh, I promptly sabotaged that career. <laughs> like a good depressed person will, if left to their own devices long enough. Um, I was always getting in the way of myself. I, I, things would be going really well, and I would do something ridiculous and bizarre to sabotage. My life became unmanageable due to mental illness after a time. Uh, age 30, I, was, I admitted myself to River Park Psychiatric Hospital in Huntington, West Virginia, because depression... I didn't know it was depression at the time until they told me, uh, diagnosed me there. But uh, my life was completely out of control. 
I couldn't, I couldn't hold a job. I couldn't function. I could, I was married. I, I was a horrible husband. It was just a horror show, but they diagnosed me accurately with major depression. And uh, for 16 days, I was an inpatient and learned a few useful things was given a Prozac prescription when my insurance ran out after 16 days and sent on my way. And, uh, this was 1990, and Prozac was insanely expensive, and my insurance wouldn't pay for it. So I took it until the, the doctor couldn't give me any more free samples, and then I ceased. But I made some changes in my life that improved things a little bit for a very short period of time. But what happened is over the next 15 years, basically... I would have these periods of wellness and then out of the blue, my mood would crash and it would always be worse. It would always be inexplic for inexplicable reasons. Uh, 19, excuse me, fast forward to 2000 and oh, excuse me to 1995. I started having severe panic attacks to the point that uh, on a couple of occasions, on one occasion specifically, I remember I called I called 911. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was also a prodigious chain smoker at that time. So I thought it was very possible I was having a heart attack. And thankfully, my heart was fine. <laughs> uh, and I, I had a terrible time finding a physician that would deal with me because I was a musician. I had the really long hair and all that stuff back then when I could grow hair. And uh, this physician I went to, I was living in Bristol, Virginia at the time, and uh, he was he was convinced that I was I was shooting up crack cocaine to the point where he made me he made me strip down in front of him to prove I didn't have any track marks. But at no time did he mention mental illness, anxiety, depression, any of that. Uh, my heart was fine, though, thankfully. I found a, a doctor in Newport, Tennessee. After moving at the end of my first marriage, and he said, if you don't go on medication now, your life's going to become very uncomfortable, like it hadn't been. Um, so I started taking Prozac, and I took it as prescribed for the better part of the next 23 years every day. But the same pattern would follow. I would feel, I felt functional. I could act in an appropriate manner for about the next three or four years. I met wife number two, and God willing, the last wife ever. Uh, and life got on, and we were doing pretty good, but I was still constantly having to focus on being in a decent state of mind and, and, and not being angry about things. And I wasn't very successful. Um, long story short, fast forward to, uh, 20, 2015, I'd been through a nervous breakdown. I'd been on a medication merry-go-round. Uh, I had a period of time where I didn't sleep more than two hours a night for about six weeks. And then my diagnosis got upgraded from major depression to major depression with psychotic features because I would have auditory hallucinations on occasion. 
it was common for me to hear kids playing in the yard when I was the only one there. Um, I performed, I was a performer in clubs and bars all over the Southeast. I'm a guitar player. I write songs, sing a little. I know how to entertain people. I worked a lot. It was very enjoyable. Uh, I got an enormous amount of pleasure about it. And while I was performing, I didn't feel like crap. Uh, but even my illness got to the point to where nobody would work with me anymore because I was just too hard to get along with. I got would get phone calls. The night after a, a great gig, I would get a phone call. I, just don't come in tonight. You're just too hard to get along with. And I was oblivious, just completely oblivious. I could never understand why people were feeling that way. Um, fast forward to January of 2015. I wait. I've been on, had meds thrown at me because when the Prozac obviously wasn't doing enough, then they started the merry-go-round of, of antipsychotic meds. Then I was even put on seizure medication. I was on Lamactyl for a time. I, I, just a myriad of meds. And they were throwing stuff up against the wall to see if something was going to stick or not. And it, the same pattern would follow. I would feel a little better for a while, and then things would get enormously worse. In January of 2015, I was on seven different meds, antipsychotics, Ativan. I was on Ativan for eight and a half years for anxiety. I was on Trazodone for eight and a half years to go to sleep at night because without it, I could not go to sleep. But I woke up with a drug hangover every morning. I weighed 289 pounds. And my psychiatrist, the last psychiatrist I'll ever have not named Chris Palmer or Georgia Ede, told me I should seriously consider electroshock therapy and or a long-term hospitalization because they ran out of meds to, to try, literally. And I had seen patients like 30 minutes after ECT before, and I knew I didn't want any part of that. And I had a genuine fear that if I checked myself into a facility, I might never get to come out. Um. I'm still writing and recording music in my home studio where I'm speaking to you from at that time. And I put a Craigslist ad out and this lady answered an extremely talented woman. Uh, I'd written some blues music that I knew I couldn't sing. And she answered the ad and she was perfect for the job, but she's watching all of this. And she mentions to me one day, have you ever thought of medical marijuana? Now, as a musician, cannabis was around, but it was not my thing. I had a bad experience with it when I was young. Beer was legal. I don't want to fool with it. So I would be the guy at gigs and rehearsals. When it came my way, I just handed it off to the next person. It just wasn't my deal. But I had heard about what had been going on in Colorado and Oregon, and, and I did some research and there's some anecdotal evidence that people were experiencing symptom relief or symptom improvement. And my wife and I at this point are like, what do we have to lose? We've done everything. I would, I was a compliant patient. I took my meds as prescribed. I didn't not only take my meds as prescribed, I researched them. I knew what the titration schedule was. I knew what the side effects were because when I worked in the field, the biggest problem we had 
with chronic mentally ill people was the fact, you know, schizophrenics, bipolar, whatever, you know, they would come into the hospital, get put on meds, get stable, go back out into the world. And after a period of time, they stopped taking their meds. And then we'd see them again and they'd be much worse off than they were before. I did not want to be one of those people. So I, my wife was astounded. She said, you can't carry on a conversation, but you can keep track of your meds. I don't understand it. And I just got worse. So we tried the cannabis. Uh, my wife found four grams of flour, a can of butter recipe, and she made these little, they weren't carnivore cookies, obviously. They were keto cookies. Oatmeal cookies made with can of butter. They were the size of a quarter. And I was scared to death of those things. I I broke one in half, ate it. And 10 minutes later, it was like a thousand suns had lifted off of me. I wasn't high. I just didn't feel like crap anymore. And then 40 minutes later, the high kicked in. And I learned, I experienced real symptom relief. For the first time in over 20 years, it eliminated the anxiety. The depression was gone. My mood was level, steady. My wife came home that day and I met her at the door laughing. She's like, what's wrong? She hadn't seen me laugh like that in years. And so that became part of my regimen. And uh, 10 days into that, well, let me, one thing about my depression, it got so bad. I couldn't accurately perceive my environment. My wife would say to me, oh, it looks like it's going to be another beautiful day. And just that tone of voice. But my illness would twist it and filter it and never in my favor. And what I genuinely heard in my ears, in my head was, Yeah, it looks like it's going to be another beautiful day. Great. Well, I love my wife. I would hear that. Honey, what's wrong? And you can imagine for her, (laughs) what do you mean what's wrong? I just told you it's going to be a beautiful day. And I still wouldn't hear it the way she said it. So there was all this constant, inability, this frustration. It was horrible for her. She suffered almost as much as I did because she had to live with me. And and I, I couldn't understand why she couldn't understand what I was trying to say. And this was constant and it just grinded on you and grinded on you. I described depression for me was like living, waking up with a 50 pound anvil on your head. It's there all day long. And you know it's not going away. And it made everything so much harder. I can't tell you how many hours I would spend in this studio fighting to make something musical happen. And I could get, I could get this far, but I needed to be that far. And I couldn't, make, I couldn't make it to where I needed to be. And I could never figure it out. So the cannabis helped me 10 days into using cannabis cookies. I'm putting my shoes on and I realize my, my belly's in the way. 
I'm like, oh, huh? This is not supposed to happen. I have a little bit, a bit of a panic attack. And I see myself accurately in the mirror for the first time in years. And it's a horror show. I look like, I look like something from The Walking Dead. Uh, I look like an imminent heart attack or stroke about to happen. And I immediately told my wife, said, I got to go on, I got to go on the Atkins diet because I tried that in the 90s and had minimal success with weight loss. My mood got better, but we never made the connection. Nobody ever said, oh, you're better because of the food chains. My doctor, I had the same physician for 16 years then. He never said a word about it. But I knew I needed to lose weight or I was going to die. And so I told my wife that night, you know, we're starting the Atkins. And I even, I'm a guitar player. I wasn't a nutritionist. I didn't know how to do it properly. I would have probably gotten a better a lot sooner if I had it because we were straining the fat off the ground beef that she was making. She'd make these big piles of ground beef and then we put cheese on top of it. Well, over the next three years with cannabis, well, by the end of 2015, I was off all the antipsychotics and antidepressants. By the end of 2016, I was off the Ativan. That was hard to come off of. But, and even the end, after I took my last eighth of a milligram dose, the very next day, my first day was zero doses. I had vertigo for the first time in my life. I don't think that's, I think that's definitely related to the Ativan. By the end of 2017, I was off the trazodone, and I've not had any pharmaceutical medications of any kind since then, save for one round of antibiotics in 2018 for upper respiratory infection. But I wasn't, I wasn't well. Cannabis treated the symptoms. It was just like an effective medication. You take the cannabis out of it, and four days later, I'm starting to come apart at the seams in a really bad, uncomfortable way. Fast forward to May of 2018, I get a message from the same lady who recommended I, I give medical marijuana a try saying, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, you got to go watch every video made by this guy named Jordan Peterson. I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> but uh, so I went and watched some videos and naturally I found the Jordan Peterson destroys collection right off the bat. And I was blown away by this man who could make newscasters unable to speak with logic and common sense. So I became a fan and it was part of my 420 regimen. Have a cookie, watch Jordan Peterson. And then one day I come across this 30 minute cutout from his one of his appearances on the Joe Rogan podcast where he describes in a way this guitar player could understand that his daughter eliminated her arthritis and mental illness problems by only eating beef, salt, and water. Now, if this is anybody, from, but Jordan Peterson telling me this at this time, a man I believe has incredible integrity, I'm, I'm changing channels because that's just crazy talk. Just eat meat. And that's going to cure mental illness. Oh, surely some doctor would have said something to me before now. And then he described how it helped him greatly improve his anxiety problems. I didn't know he suffered from mental illness most of his life, which makes his accomplishments in my mind even more staggering. So here I've got this 
person with incredible integrity telling me I could heal myself. I had my wife watch it because I'm like, that's, huh? She said, yeah, that's really what he's saying. So I investigated further and then I found my next video was Dr. Sean Baker on Joe Rogan talking about how people have, he's watched and helped people heal themselves of all sorts of things just through this wonderful way of eating. And again, you've got this incredible human being with impeccable integrity. He was an Air Force combat surgeon. They just don't let anybody do that. You've got to be an extraordinarily well put put together person to even be considered for it. So this integrity thing is, this. I watched the dietary portion of that episode probably 50 times because I'm like, There's got to be a flaw in the logic. This is too good to be true. Why haven't I heard about this? And then I saw a talk by Amber O'Hearn that she gave in 2016, where she described how we came out of the trees as a species, just eating meat. And there was enough pieces of the puzzle there for a guitar player like me to say, I've got to try this. So July 16th, 2018, I started eating meat and drinking water. And I haven't stopped. Ten days into it, I woke up. (laughs) These are tears of joy, by the way, guys, because it's such a beautiful memory. I woke up without joint pain for the first time as an adult. I felt like a kid. I was taking very early, you know, 6 a.m. walks, and I'm skipping down the sidewalk, giggling, because it doesn't hurt. And then... August, the morning of August 9th, I'm taking my walk. And one of the things I'd been really afraid of was that I would say I was, my symptoms were gone before they were. I was very, very concerned about that because I could see myself sitting. I had this history of self-sabotage. I was very worried that I might sabotage it. But the morning of August night, I'm taking the walk. And it's like somebody flipped a switch. And all that rage and all that anger and all that fury and all that crap that kept me from being the person I always knew I could be, that I wanted desperately so to be, it all just went away. It just was gone. And it was replaced by a waterfall of joy and happiness that has not left me, not for one moment, for any day since. Completely gone. The symptoms have never come back. Not even a hint. And that's why I agreed to do talks like this, because people need to know. They're not broken. They're not a genetic mistake. They were just taught, like I was, to eat things that are inflammatory. And an inflamed brain just won't work right. Mine, certainly. And I'm happy as all get out to be able to share that with you all today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Brett. Thank you, Brett. Well, that's... That's a really powerful, I, I mean, 
we will get into the science to talk a little bit about it. What there's so little we know to be honest, but I don't think anybody can challenge the authenticity of your words. I mean, I, I, I can hear the emotion in your voice. I can see it in your face and I can't even imagine the suffering you went through the way you were describing it. I was just reflecting on, you know, I, I almost hate to draw the parallel, but what I went through, not even without, you know, men mental uh, illness, but other, other problems just for a couple of years. And, and just thinking about your timeline from age 15 to that you adopted this, I guess you said around four years ago in your late mid to late fifties. So that would have been about 40 years of suffering. That's longer than I've been alive. I can't even, I can't even fathom um, that and all the, you know, compounding on the, the, the mental illness, the biological illness, the environment around mental illness and the knowledge or lack thereof that leads to an absence of an appreciation for what you're going through and an absence of an appreciation. It sounds like even for, from you, from what you're going through, you're, you're just at some point thinking this is just the way I am. Um, and that, and, and there's, a, there's a hopelessness, I can only imagine, uh, that just kind of sets in. And then to kind of start to toy with things out of no expectation, but also a nothing to lose kind of desperate attitude. And then to find, wait, there's something maybe here. And, um, and then to have that, that experience, I, um, I, <laughs> I can somewhat appreciate why you're so happy and enthusiastic and um i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna open it up now for for dr palmer to respond with his insights and then i have some questions about i think people would be interested to know what you were eating breath beforehand we can talk a little bit about the brain and mental illness uh inflammation and diet altogether. but um uh, chris i'm sure you have something to say yeah no it um i i think that the first thing that is probably really important to say is that all you know, although Brett's story is very powerful, and for a lot of people who have not experienced mental illness or known somebody close to them with a chronic mental illness, it may sound highly unusual. But the the unfortunate reality is that Brett's story actually is not that unusual unfortunately, um, the, the majority, the overwhelming majority of people who are receiving treatment for depression have a chronic disorder. That means that our treatments do not put their disorder into full remission. We know that from lots of the, the most rigorous studies and evidence bases that we have right now. The, the statistics are, um, you know, one study looked at a lot of people with major depression, which was Brent, Brent's diagnosis, um, and uh, followed people for 12 years to see how many of them actually get better and how many of them have a course like Brett's where, you know, they, they get a little better for some of the time and then the symptoms come back and then they get a little better again with a med change and then they, the symptoms come back or how many people don't get better at all. 
And what they found is that over 90%, about 90% of the people had chronic symptoms. And so the symptoms would in fact get better for a, a few months or even a year or two, but would always come back. And that on average, those people that they followed for 12 years were ill with depressive symptoms for 57% of the time. So more than half of their life, they were clinically depressed, having symptoms of depression, even though they were all taking their pills and doing their psychotherapy and doing all of the treatments that they were supposed to be doing. Um, And so that's just one of many studies that has now basically documented and confirmed that the majority of people who receive treatment for mental illness have a chronic mental illness. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. The diagnosis could be ADHD, it could be depression, and it certainly includes schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism, all of them. Um, But one one thing I think a lot of people don't know is that depression is now the leading cause of disability in the United States and on planet Earth. So that means there are more people who are disabled by a medical illness from, and that medical illness is depression than any other illness. That includes cancer, heart failure, diabetes, all of them, all of the other illnesses. Um, Depression is now the number one cause. Again, the majority, overwhelming majority of those people are getting treatment. It's not that they're not getting treatment and the illness is just really bad. It's not that those people can't get a psychiatrist or a mental health professional. They are in in treatment and the treatment isn't working for them. So, So at the end of the day, I think stories like Brett's and stories like many others in terms of novel therapeutic options are really important to at least consider. Um, The really good news for the work that I've been doing, which, you know, Brett's story kind of highlights the work that I've been doing with many patients. Um, The really good news about it is that we actually already have a really robust evidence base behind this one particular dietary intervention. And we actually don't have it for any other dietary intervention. Well, so will you first define, sorry, just define that because Brett talked about a carnivore diet, which is a little bit distinct from a ketogenic diet. So when you say one particular intervention, what are you referring to? It, I, would, I would call it the ketogenic diet. So the carnivore diet that Brett is describing is almost certainly ketogenic, at least at times. And it, um, it certainly uh, is a no-carbohydrate diet, um, and it consists of you know, protein and fat. Now, if Brett said he eats lean protein only and does not have any fat with his protein, then it's possible he may not be in ketosis. Certainly when you when Brett was really overweight and rapidly losing weight or even slowly but surely losing weight, almost definitely in ketosis because he had plenty of fat stores on his body to make ketone bodies um, and to, to have fat as a fuel. 
but um it, it so so this this kind of no carbohydrate diet there is one other dietary intervention for which we have some evidence, and that's the low glycemic index diet. Um, and uh, so the the quick story for people who don't know this already is, you know, the ketogenic diet has been used for 100 years in the treatment of epilepsy. And so we actually know more about this diet and its effects on the brain than any other dietary intervention. And I really mean that hands down. So this includes Mediterranean diet. It includes taking omega-3 fatty acids. It includes taking antioxidants. Any other dietary intervention. We know more about what the ketogenic diet is doing to the brain. Um, and it, it happens to be a lot of good things and a lot of therapeutic effects. We know more about that than any other dietary intervention. That is one of the reasons that people have taken my work seriously is because I get the privilege of just pulling all of this research that's been done by all of these other scientists for many decades now. And I get to connect the dots and say, oh, well, wait, you know, we know that inflammation can play a role in mental disorders for a lot of people. And this diet is anti-inflammatory. We know that neurotransmitter imbalances might play a role and this diet balances neurotransmitter. Um, and on and on and on. And maybe we'll talk a little more about the science in a bit. I hope we do. Um, I want to ask one, one follow-up question, playing devil's advocate a little bit. Because you said stories like Brett's um, are unfortunately not that uncommon. Well, I mean, spoiler alert, I agree with you. That said, somebody might argue there are a lot more people that are, you know, publicly saying that they, or people know more people that have benefited from medications than they have from a carnivore diet. And there's also more data on medications. So I want to make, ask you a little statistics question, and this might require a degree of speculation, but based on your clinical experience, we really shouldn't care as much about the absolute number of people benefiting from drugs or a carnivore diet as we should from, or a ketogenic diet, as we should from the proportion who try and succeed. And the fact of the matter is ketogenic diets are still not popularly offered as options to patients or carnivore diets or whatever you want to say. I mean, you can tell from Brett's story, he suffered for well over three decades before stumbling across this, not from a physician, but from a friend and from, you know, internet searching when he was desperate. And it was, I mean, my story was a little bit shorter, but it was similar. It was, years and dozens of doctors, and then it was trying something out of desperation. So people aren't trying this, which means the number of, of people that are going to be benefiting is obviously going to be much, much lower. So the question is, we know the proportion of people benefiting in the long term from drugs is relatively small. You can probably put a statistic on it. Um, how would you compare that number to the proportion of people who try a bona fide ketogenic or carnivore diet and benefit? So if you took someone with Brett's story, but who wasn't Brett, um, and put them on a ketogenic or carnivore diet, what proportion do you think would improve versus say just having another drug? You know, it, it's a really good question and it's a really important question. And I'm going to give I'm going to give my Harvard doctor answer, which is, we don't know, nobody knows. And anybody who tells you they know is lying to you or really naive. 
Um, and so, uh, so one of the ways that I really want to build an argument for this diet is to always stay evidence-based. And that means I know what I know, and I also know what I don't know. And so, so I think that question is a really important question. I think right now, if, if you are a physician or mental health professional treating somebody with major depression, you are required almost by law to treat them with a quote unquote evidence-based treatment. And for the most part, that means a medication or psychotherapy or maybe even light therapy if you think they might have seasonal affective disorder. Um, there are some herbs and supplements that have more of an evidence base than dietary interventions do. However, the reason I think this work is so important is because again, we have tens of millions of people who have treatment resistant illness. They've already run through all of the regular standard treatments and they are disabled by their illness. It is ruining their lives. They are desperate for a better answer. So although I would, I don't think that we can really recommend that people start with a dietary intervention as a first line treatment, at least as a provider, you can't strongly push a dietary intervention. At the end of the day, we don't make those choice. We don't make the treatment choice for the patient. The patient makes the treatment choice. So if a patient comes to you and says, yeah, yeah, you're, you've told me about medication and psychotherapy. I don't want that. I want this dietary intervention. It's perfectly reasonable for a treater to work with that patient on that. Um, but again, in my case, I don't have trouble finding suitable patients for this treatment because there are tens of millions of people with treatment-resistant illness. They've already done the standard treatments. So it's not like we have to look very far to find suitable candidates. The way that we're going to change that and that we're, we're, we're working on, the way that we're going to change that is through research studies. If we can get good quality research studies done where we take a group of 50 people or 100 people with a certain disorder, whether it's depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and we treat them with a, let's say, ketogenic diet. And there are lots of variations of ketogenic diets. So there's the carnivore diet that Brett's on. I want to just be clear, just for everybody's knowledge, there are vegan ketogenic diets. So you, it, this isn't about meat versus plant. It, it's not. It, it can be. And for some people, it is. For some people, I think some people do much better with a meat-based diet. Other people might do better with a more plant-based diet. Um, I have less reason to believe that the latter, but if, if their values, if their ethics, if their culture kind of compel them to eat a plant-based diet, you can do a ketogenic plant-based diet. And um, so, 
I think that, you know, once we get those studies, if we take 50 or 100 people, assign them all this treatment, and then we have to see how many of them actually get better. And part of that equation is not just how effective the diet is, but part of that equation is how realistic and practical is it for people to actually do. Because if I take a group of 50 people and only 20 of them will actually follow through and do the diet, and the other 30, for whatever reasons, they live by fast food restaurants, they're poor, they can't afford a diet, they, their family eats Twinkies and you know cookies all day, and so they are tempted all the time and they just can't do it. That's irrelevant because at the end of the day, we have to have real world solutions. We can't lock everybody up and force them to do this diet against the rest of culture and against the rest of everything else. So, so at the end of the day, we need to see what those studies are like. And then ideally, we would have some head-to-head studies where we take a group of 100 people with chronic depression and we assign half of them to a dietary intervention, let's say a ketogenic diet, and we assign the other half of them to yet another medication trial. And then we see what happens to the 50 people who got the other medication, what happens to the 50 who got the ketogenic diet, and is there a superior outcome in one group or the other? If we get a very strong unequivocal signal in that study, if the dietary intervention is far superior to yet another medication, that will compel most it will certainly allow most mental health professionals to start offering this as potentially even a first-line treatment. Mm-hmm. It will it will certainly allow it, them to offer it as an option. Yeah. Unfor- unfortunately, we're years away from having those studies completed. Yeah, money and time to- and time. Research is a bureaucratic. It is a horrible bureaucratic process. It takes. So many years, people don't understand this, but it takes years to do a research study with 50 or 100 patients even. It can take a decade to do a really large, rigorous trial with 1,000 patients or something. And pharma is not funding you. Pharma is not funding it. And unfortunately, right now, the government, most agencies are not funding it. And the primary reason most agencies are not funding this right now is because they don't think it's realistic and practical. I can convince them of the science. Other researchers can convince them of the science. That's not difficult. Because again, I I have this kind of luxury of decades and decades of neurology research on this diet and what it's doing to the brain. Every scientist that I have ever spoken with about this dietary intervention, if I have even 10 minutes to explain it to them, they get excited about it. They understand the science. But at the end of the day, what I hear from many of them is, but how the hell are you going to get chronically depressed, 
suicidal, schizophrenic, bipolar patients to do this diet. Nobody can do any diet. Like getting people to do a Mediterranean diet is next to impossible. And that's even for regular people. Like nobody can do a diet and you're going to get seriously ill, chronically disabled patients to do this ridiculously restrictive diet. They just don't believe that it's possible. Yeah. That, that really, you know, that frustrates me a lot. The it's because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy just in society in general. So the, there's this notion that like, well, I like to say ketogenic diets and, and, or carnivore diets and, you know, are, 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 uh, restrictive and hard to maintain and kind of unpleasant. And you get that messaging a lot. Um, first of all, just really quickly before I, I dither on, you know, Brett, what would you say to that? Do you enjoy your food? I love every bite of every meal I have. I have since day one. It's insanely delicious, each and every bite. It's And I've been eating the same thing basically since December of 2018. I eat primary, I eat lean ground beef and bacon. And uh, it's all, you know, the ground beef is cooked in uh, bacon grease, beef tallow and salt. That's it. And I'm satisfied after each and every meal. I have, I don't think about food again until the next time I get hungry. It's so Brett, wonderful. Let, let me chime in and ask you, how long did it take though? before you started missing, before you no longer missed bread or desserts or fruit or whatever, whatever other foods, whatever your go-tos were, ice cream, popcorn, candy, everybody, almost everybody, I'm including myself, I've had my back in the day, I loved all that stuff. It was great. And and there was a time when I remember thinking like, oh, if I had to give all that up, what's the point in being alive? Like, <laughs> like if you can't live a little, if you can't enjoy yourself with delicious food and treats, like what's the point? Um, now that I'm on the other side of it, I don't miss it at all. But I'm wondering for you, how long did it take before, or did you really just not miss it from even day one? The 10th morning, the same morning I woke up without joint pain, the sugar cravings were gone. The cravings for carbs was gone. It's just gone. And I, I, I haven't missed them. There have been times when I've seen things that I used to love that I've taken a step back because what's happened is, is and if I see those things now, my stomach rolls in protest. Like, don't you dare put that back in here. I don't think about it. I don't miss it. It's just, you know, it's just not, it's irrelevant to my existence these days. It yeah. really, truly is. And I don't feel like when I hear people, oh, this way of eating is so, you're so, so restrictive. I'm like, listen. You want to know it's restrictive? Depression's restrictive. When you can't carry on or keep carry on a conversation or even keep a job because you can't accurately perceive your environment, that's pretty damn restrictive. 
Not being able to sleep is extraordinarily restrictive. And I'm not even going to I'm not even going to go into the anxiety component because that's a horror show unto itself. I have never felt like I was denying myself anything because I experience I experience every day. It is my sincere belief that everybody could experience this if their environment will permit it. If you're properly fed, if you're properly hydrated and you've got an appropriate amount of dress and somebody loves you a little bit, my I believe our normal state of being is one of happiness because that's what I experience every day. And it's not something, oh, you must really work really hard at being happy. I don't work really hard at anything. I'm a guitar player. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I work hard at music. I don't work hard at anything else. And it's effortless. It's not like I wake up smiling every morning. I'm smiling before my feet hit the floor. And I've learned you can't fake joy. You'll see some people, you, you know, the, the shysters and whatnot in media. I could, I could, that's easy. Real joy, you can't fake that. I don't care who you are, how good an actor you are. You can't fake real joy. Mm. And my, that's what I, every day. One Go of my, ahead. One of my favorite phrases to ask people is, um, or I'll just tell them, when pain increases, hearing improves. And Nick, you kind of alluded to this too. Like there's something that's self-fulfilling about eating this way that makes it be for most people um, pretty easy to comply to because it's just like Brett was saying, like what what the opposite of not complying with something that's pretty enjoyable is a whole lot of pain. So yeah. it was it was interesting back in my career, we used to do um, 60 day weight loss contests with the company that I was working with. And it would be this thing where we give people shopping lists and they've got to do their three meals and three snacks a day and lots of whole grains and vegetables and things like that. And people would stick with it for the first week or two weeks or three weeks. And then inevitably they would just get off of it. And so we learned a few years ago that if we just, you know, gave people some very simple ketogenic meal plans, they would get better results. And we were able to track compliance. And so the number of people that came to the contest that started the weigh-in, we got their weight and body fat percentage, then got to the actual way out and they showed up and weighed out. And we would regularly have our group of people, we were giving them different meal plans, mostly ketogenic, and we would see compliance numbers in the 60s and 70% pretty consistently. And that's across a lot of different people. It certainly is anecdote, but it's, it's you know, there were men, there were women, some were old, some were young, some wanted to gain muscle, other people wanted to lose weight. But the compliance numbers were pretty easy to, to see the difference between eating a standard quote unquote healthy diet with lots of vegetables and chicken breasts and things like that. And certainly people can do that if they want, but I just, I certainly found that it was a lot easier to get people to stick with it when they ate in a style that bread is eating for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, th this whole sustainability thing, I really boil down to like three factors. I think one is the environment in which we live. I don't think the diet is hard in and of itself. Like eating what you can have avocado fries and eggs or steak or whatever. Like it's a delicious diet. That said, there's a lot of social and pressures and environmental limitations like eating out that makes it difficult for some people. I think we can accept that society, environmental issues, set that aside. That's a whole nother conversation. The second factor has to do, I think with carbohydrate or ultra processed food or sugar addiction, that there is this quality of addictiveness in these foods that we feel linked to. And we have this perception that we need them. We crave them, but we don't necessarily like them as much as we think. And so when you eliminate them and those cravings go away, you're not actually missing out because you don't have the desire. So 
this is a desire most people don't want. So rather than like perceiving this as I can't imagine a life without cake, what about imagining a life where you didn't even want the cake in the first place, which is interesting. And when you actually live, say, sugar-free or on a ketogenic diet, it, it, I can speak from experience, and I'm sure Brett and Chris, you can confirm that the simple foods you enjoy a lot more. Like I used to eat ice cream cake, guzzle Nutella. Like it was just, I was habituated to it. And now if I have a couple blueberries, I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is so indulgent. And I enjoy it more. I like it more. I taste, I actually taste more sweet than beforehand. So there is, you know, flavors in the mind, taste is in the mind as an habituation effect. But the third thing, the third factor, which I think is the biggest, is balancing the difficulty of the diet. Even if we said, okay, somebody who's really addicted to sugar or somebody is in a really hard environment for them to maintain. Balancing those factors, all the factors, against someone's motivation. Like the, what you gained, Brett, from going on this, that motivation, I can, like, it, and in and my own story, it overpowered anything that, that I could have derived from food. There was a point where I'm like, if I never get to taste food again, but I could be symptom free, I'll take that trade in a heartbeat, like in a heartbeat. And I think for the average person on the street, uh, especially those who aren't dealing with, you know, weight troubles to say, okay, you can never have a carbohydrate again, which is not actually true on a ketogenic diet, but just saying that be like, no, it's not worth it. My motivation isn't high enough, but when you're someone with a mental illness or some sort of metabolic illness and you, or you're, you know, you're obese, which is a metabolic illness and you lose that weight, your mental health improves, your gut symptoms get better. What your arthritis gets better and you can move again without pain. When you have that motivation pointing you towards just maintaining this lifestyle, I think for most people, that's a much more powerful factor than any of the difficulties that arise with, you know, maintaining this lifestyle, which is, you know, I don't think in a nutshell, patients are given enough credit. And I can speak with authority on that, not as a researcher, not as a doctor, because I'm not a medical doctor yet, but as a patient, that I wish I was given some more credit along the way. Because if somebody had told me about this earlier on, I would have been on it in a heartbeat. So. Yeah. No, I, I can't agree more. And, you know, I, uh, I don't have a large randomized controlled trial to, to talk about, but I have dozens of patients that I have treated with this. And I completely agree. I think that um, when motivation is high, uh, people are willing to try just about anything. And I will tell you, as a psychiatrist, I see this every day, even before I was using ketogenic diets. We get people to do electric shock therapy to their brain. We get people to try medications that sedate the hell out of them and that make them gain 50 pounds. And why do they do those things? Nobody does those things lightly. Nobody does those things because they want to. Everybody who does those things is asking themselves, isn't there a better option? Isn't there something else I could try other than this? But they do them anyway because they are that desperate. They are desperate for their health. They are desperate for their sanity. They are desperate to just get better and they will do anything. And so 
you know, we in the medical field get people to do treatments that have serious side effects and that are sometimes frightening to do. Um, radiation and chemo for cancer, we get people to do that all the time. Those are toxins, those are poisons, but we get people to take poisons because it's their best chance at surviving. And, and so, you know, I, I think you're right that, 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 you know, when the dietary, the, the huge caveat to all of this is the dietary intervention has to work. Because if the dietary intervention doesn't work and they do, I usually get people to sign up for three months. I tell them you, you have to do this for three months before we give up on it. And the three months is for two reasons. Number one, it can take that long. It usually, it usually does not, but it can take that long for some people to get significant benefit, number one. But number two, the more important reason in my mind, the cravings are gone by three months. Prior to three months, a lot of people, if I ask them at one month and they say, I'm a lot better, but I'm craving my my ice cream and my cookies and I can't stand going out to eat anymore because I just watch people eat all this delicious food that I don't get to have and I'm tormented by it. They're still they're tormented by these cravings. If I ask them at one month, do you think this is sustainable for you? Most of them are going to say probably not. Um, like I just need to do this for a little longer. My symptoms are better so I can go off the diet now, right? And it's like, no, not, that's not the way it works, unfortunately. At the three-month mark, that's usually enough time that they're like, you know what? If you had asked me earlier, I would have said no. But now, yeah, I don't miss that food. I, I really thought I would miss it. I really thought it was impossible for me to live my life without ice cream or without popcorn or without what candy or whatever their delicious, craveable thing is. But at three months, if you can go without it for three months, most people still don't believe me, but I just keep saying this over and over again. It's like, you, you got to trust me on this one. I, I've seen it happen countless times. It's happened to me myself. I wouldn't have believed it at time zero either. But if you just, tough it out for three months. Then I will ask you at three months, now, do you want to continue the treatment? And if the diet has worked for them, almost always people are like, yes, I can't imagine going back to that hell I was in. The huge caveat is that number one, the diet doesn't work for everybody. But again, that begs the question, well, exactly what diet did they do? And that gets into a whole can of worms that I won't go into, but I'll just, you know, bookmark that maybe if we want to discuss that. But sometimes the dietary intervention doesn't work. But even for weight loss, it's the same deal. People can do any weight loss diet. If they want to lose weight, they can do any weight loss diet as long as it's working. As soon as they hit that plateau, if that plateau lasts for three or more weeks, that's when they jump ship. That's when they say, you know what? This isn't working for me anymore. I lost my 20 pounds and now I'm just stagnant. 
and I may as well just go back on. I just, I don't, I guess I'll just put up with my 20 pound weight loss and that'll be good enough. We all know what happens. Unfortunately, they go off that diet. They go back to their old eating patterns. They gain that 20 pounds back and then they're right back to square one, if not even worse. But yeah. uh, it's about effectiveness too. So round table now, what were all of our, I thought I could never live without these foods, foods. What was yours, Chris? You alluded to, you had one. <laughs> this is a fun. Honestly, I had so many of them. <laughs> there was, there, I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to pick McDonald's French fries because I used to work at McDonald's. And there was a time when I clearly acknowledged I was addicted to McDonald's French fries and I would get free, a free meal every day. I worked five days a week. And even on the days I didn't work, I would still drive back there to get more. <laughs> Brett or Casey, anything jump to mind? I guess for me, homemade pizza. I used to be a prodigious popcorn eater, but I loved coconut cake, coconut cream pie. Um, I was a potato chip fiend. I loved it all. If it was, if it was junky, I loved it. It really, it it was never like, and I was never conscious when I was stressed or anything. It wasn't like I ran to food when I was stressed. It was, I just wanted to eat all the time, constantly. I had a big thing for, this is kind of esoteric, but Chris, I don't know if you know Rosie's Bakery, since we're both near Boston. They had these special walnut dreams which are like little pecan square, like pecan pie squares, but like they have walnuts on top. They were the, the best thing of my childhood. And I used to eat them by the case. My parents would come home with like cases of 30 and I would guzzle them down in easily like a week. I was also a cereal fiend. I, I couldn't have lived without cereal. I think every single day, basically between the ages of what, 10 and 13, I ate an entire box of cereal a day. I thought it was healthy, actually. I was I was a big fan of Special K Red Berries. But uh, I think I did the back calculation. One box, like 248 grams of sugar. <laughs> so I'd like sugar. But it, was, but it was low fat, so that was good. Part of this complete breakfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, if, if you do the diet, like they say, and have like a, a, a third of a, or a three quarters of a cup for breakfast, then one 90-calorie tiny cereal bar for lunch and one 90-calorie tiny cereal bar for dinner and maintain that, I'm, I'm sure people really do lose weight. Um, I wasn't necessarily eating that diet, but <laughs> just marketing for you, Casey. Wow. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was definitely ice cream and on bike rides, we would stop at gas stations and I would do, you know, the red package of grandma's cookies that had two double fudge cookies. I would rip that open two packages at a time, two cookies at a time and just down the gullet. And it was the only way I could survive on a bike ride. It was, it was bananas. Mm. Totally crazy. It's funny. We just got back from Mexico. We took a trip down there, my wife and I, Bethany, um, and I took a trip down to uh, Mexico. We went to an all-inclusive and we talked before we left. Like Bethany has a history with an eating disorder. So we always have to be a little bit mindful of feeling like our diet is, you know, too restrictive. All, but, but the same thing happened to us that happened to you, Brett, like we don't eat very many things. Like we are on a rotation of maybe three or four different things that we prepare. They're all very simple. They're super tasty. We never feel like we're restrictive, even though the list of foods that we have is just kind of limited. And again, on our way down, we were kind of talking and just saying like, look, it's vacation. Let, we can just kind of eat whatever we want. They're going to have, you know, lots of different flavors and textures and, you know, screw it. It's just a vacation. And we just noticed like it was just 
each day, each meal would pass and we would just keep walking by all the crappy food, like, like tables of delicious looking desserts and bread and, you know, the, you know, tortillas, tortilla chips and all that stuff. And it's like, first of all, this isn't even going to taste as good as I remember it. It's not going to be that great. And what, what day, what meal am I willing to start feeling like crap and start the cycle of craving foods again? And day in and day out just came without us really being willing to do that. I'd like to enjoy my life. I like to be present for my clients. I like to, you know, not crave foods and not need to eat all day. I can eat once or twice a day some really delicious food. That's what we ended up doing. We just, we, we just weren't willing to compromise that. So, again, it made it really simple. It's not worth feeling like crap to have 30 seconds of something that may or may not even taste that great anyway. So, so no one went out today, uh, for reference, we're recording on June 4th and got their free donut. It's national donut. Day, guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know that? No, thank you. Wow. Established in 1938. Wow. I didn't know that. Somebody could, somebody could put it in on a silver platter right in front of me. Don't you want one? And I would be like, no, for exactly the reason Casey just said, yeah. no, I don't want to feel like crap tomorrow morning when I wake up. Why would I? Why would I eat that? And I, I, there are plenty of delicious things that I can eat. So I, I don't need that. Yeah. A donut. If I ate a glazed donut for real, it's not an exaggeration. I would be in a locked psych unit before the sun went down. Wow. I learned from ingesting one mint that was labeled zero carbs, zero sugar. This again, guitar player, not a nutrition expert but it was flavored with xylitol and they were the size about a quarter of the size of a dime, little tiny mints for, I popped that in my mouth at the six week mark between the cash register and the car in the parking lot. My behavior deteriorated before my wife drove us out of the parking lot. But she said, you're not being very nice to me. All of a sudden you sound like you used to. And it was, I was already unable to accurately perceive my environment. It took me two days to get, use enough cannabis to get past that. <laughs> Literally. Just from one little tiny mint. And I learned at that moment, I, there's no taste, there's no flavor, there's no texture, there's no social setting worth me risking my sanity for. Well, and that's a, it's a really good point because I had a, I have a, patient who got dramatically better um, on a ketogenic diet. He had suffered from schizoaffective disorder and he too got really sick eating what was labeled a ketogenic chocolate bar. It was labeled keto. Um, and, but it was, it had tons of, um, you know, sugar alcohols, it, it may have had the soluble corn fiber. Um, that's a really big thing in keto labeled products right now. Um, but I just want to warn people who are using this for medical conditions and certainly for brain conditions. Corn is not part of a ketogenic diet. Soluble corn fiber, whatever the hell that is, is not part of a ketogenic, <laughs> is not part of a medical ketogenic diet. Um, but it that the bar says keto, so innocent 
people think, well, I can have that because I'm on a keto diet, so I can eat that. Well, at least for him, he got floridly psychotic within 24 hours, came in saying, I may need to go to the hospital. That is not something he ever said. He hated the hospital. Hospitalizations were traumatic for him. They just doped him up. And he was in so much distress and just so symptomatic that he was like, I may need to go to the hospital. Like, this is messed up. I was like, what the hell have you done? Like, measured his ketones, weighed him. I'm like, you broke the diet. What happened? And he's like, no, I didn't. No, I, we argued about that. And, and then it finally came out. It's a keto chocolate bar. It's difficult. I mean, it, it's, it's, the ingredients are everywhere. In fact, just the other day, I had stomach pain and I didn't know why it was. I, d I don't tolerate any artificial sweeteners, be it xylitol, erythritol, allulose, stevia, whatever. I mean, stevia is not uh, artificial, but I just don't tolerate it. And I had some tea and it was really hurting my stomach. And I'm like, there's, not, there's nothing on this label that suggests that it would cause me any irritation. It says natural flavors. Apparently natural flavors can now include certain stevial glycosides, which it did. So things are everywhere. And you go look at things like, You'd think, okay, just go to a supermarket, try to get some like sliced deli meat. Most of that deli meat will, if you look at the label, have dextrose in it. Dextrose is glucose, it's sugar. Now, it's not a high enough dose to per se like be non-keto. They can label it as keto based on macros, but a lot of the effect of ketogenic diets for at least epilepsy based on some models or some of the effects in some people, I could even say, might be mediated by effects on the microbiome. So when you're throwing in things that are humans wouldn't normally consume, including sweeteners, it couldn't even just cause some sort of dysbiosis. This is all in the realm of speculation, but I'm just trying to put a little bit of theory behind the experiences that like Brett just you know, described, people are really having. Um, so it, this is one element of the environmental factors that does make it really difficult is even when you're trying your best, things are hidden everywhere. But with that, I, I want to uh, tangent a little bit and talk a little bit about the science. So, so, Chris, what do you think about, you know, is going on in the brain of somebody with a mental illness? 50,000 foot view, since we're talking to more of a lay audience, focusing on, let's say, insulin resistance and inflammation, maybe. So it's a great, it's a great question. And the, so the, the 50,000 foot view is kind of, you know, it kind of depends on what exactly what mental illness we're talking about. But the, the reality is that all mental illnesses are syndromes, which means we don't know what causes any of them. We know risk factors for all of them, but we don't know how those risk factors fit together and we don't know what causes any of them. The, the reality in terms of um, inflammation is that people with chronic mental illness um, tend to have higher levels of inflammation than people who don't have chronic mental illness. But it's not significant enough or consistent enough that we can diagnose anybody by doing a test for inflammation. And so you can have a mental illness and not have any elevated markers of inflammation, but on average, people with chronic mental illnesses tend to have higher levels of inflammation. 
So interestingly, you could say this that exact same thing that I just said for people with obesity, people with type 2 diabetes, for people with cardiovascular disease, but also for people who are just getting older. Um, as people age, all of those things are true. And then you asked about glucose hypometabolism. So glucose hypometabolism is, um, it's a word, some people think it's, automatically synonymous with insulin resistance. Um, it's not entirely clear that that's true when we talk about the brain. It is true for most other parts of your body. If, you're, if, the, if the cells in most other parts of your body do not have enough glucose to metabolize, the most common reason for that is what we would call insulin resistance you know, or a lack of insulin, like in type one diabetes. But um, glucose hypometabolism in the brain, um, we know that insulin does play a, a significant role in the brain. It, it appears that some cells in the brain, insulin is playing a similar role to what it plays in the rest of the body, which is it's this gateway, it's this like lock and key mechanism to allow glucose to get into the cell. But in most brain cells, they actually don't need insulin for glucose to get inside the cell. Um, and what we're learning is that insulin also appears to play a signaling role. You, some might even consider it kind of a neurotransmitter or a brain hormone, but it's more than just it has more to do with just its effects on letting glucose into a brain cell. But, but we know that glucose hypometabolism, so this, this problem with brain cells being energy deficient because they, they either aren't using glucose effectively or they don't have enough glucose to use. So it could be either one of those. It could either be that the cell is somehow not able to use the fuel source of glucose, or it could be that that fuel source has trouble getting into the cell. Um, we know that that has been found in Alzheimer's disease. We know it's been found in schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, chronic depression, and many other disorders. Traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, lots of disorders have found this phenomenon of glucose hypometabolism. And at the end of the day, the way I think about that is that it, what it means is that those brain cells aren't getting enough energy, plain and simple. All right, and, and how can a ketogenic diet, leading question obviously, improve that problem? So the, the uh, yeah, that's it. So the obvious part of that is ketones, are an alternate fuel source. So if for some reason glucose can't get inside cells, ketones can get inside cells. Ketones don't need a lock and key or any other mechanism. Ketones can get into your cells. Um, brain cells typically are not using fatty acids, but they are using ketones. Neurons. Uh, neurons, yes, I should say. Yeah, as I, I, I always get hit on that. That's why as opposed to glial cells, yes. Um, but uh, the but the other thing about ketogenic diets, 
related to what we just talked about is that we know that it improves insulin resistance. So if your insulin system is having trouble functioning properly because it has become desensitized for whatever reason, um, we know that the ketogenic diet can improve that. The ketogenic diet also decreases neuroinflammation. So it decreases inflammatory signals in the brain. We have an abundance of evidence for that in the epilepsy literature. We have a really good, robust study for people with alcoholism, where they, the researchers um, at the federal government did a study of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism, and they found the same thing, that it decreases brain inflammation, and it increases metabolism in brain cells that had trouble using glucose. Um, and uh, there are many other mechanisms of the ketogenic diet. As you mentioned, gut microbiome might be one of them, but there are so many other mechanisms. We know that it balances neurotransmitters, it changes ion channels, it changes signaling pathways, it does all sorts of things. Um, but I'll stop there for now, because those are very straightforward. And again, in this beautiful way, they address what we already know are clear pathological problems in the brains of people with chronic mental illness. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I just wanted to touch on it just because I, I know maybe not as well as you, but I know that the number of mechanisms describing the biological plausibility behind what Brett just described and what people are experiencing is really impressive. I thought food is medicine before I had my own experience was a little bit froofy, to be honest. And then I had an experience. And then I you know, started meeting people like Brett and, and others who are having similar experiences. Then it forces you to start to look at the data and you're like, wow, this actually makes sense to explain what people are actually experiencing. Now we need the randomized controlled trials. Now we need deeper data. That said, the brain, and especially the mind, this is why it becomes so difficult. This research is really hard to access. You alluded to it a little bit. But some of the questions that we want to ask about brain metabolism to do those studies in humans are almost impossible or next to impossible. I laugh all the time because right now intermittent fasting is really big and I'm very pro fasting, but people are like, they always talk about, oh, you fast for 16 hours and then autophagy is activated in the brain. I'm like, show me that those data. Because to do that study, you'd have to cut people's heads off at the end of the trial. So I'm guessing that study has not been done unless there's some sort of imaging I don't know about. I mean, it would be kind of hard to recruit for that trial. We do have one 2010 study from mice, but that's about it. So there is a lot of theory and I appreciate your integrity as a, a scientist and a clinician, Chris, on uh, drawing the lines of the literature. But again, I don't think we can deny what people like Brett are um, experiencing. Um, I, I have a, a million places I'd like to go now, but um, Brett, you haven't talked in, in a little while. Is there something you'd like to say or a, a topic you'd like to bring up? Well, it, one of the things that I've been doing, I, I'm an advocate, an active advocate for this way of eating because I've seen it change and transform so many people's lives. And one of the main motivators for that came, I was just two months into my experience and, and not saying much about it except on Facebook. And this lady that I'd grown up with, she's a few years older than me, messages me and says, listen, I've got primary progressive multiple sclerosis I was recently diagnosed with. Um, she, 
shared all these symptoms. She's fallen down all the time and all this horrible stuff. And she said her doctor told her she would spend most of the rest of her life in a wheelchair and that it would never, ever go into remission. I didn't know anything. I just said, well, this is what I'm doing. And I gave her the same directions that I was given on how to do it successfully. Well, she fired that neurologist two months later because the woman's 100% symptom free, completely. No symptoms whatsoever. And she's not the first person with primary progressive multiple sclerosis I've talked to personally who's experienced this kind of healing. And I am, I have, I'm, I, I coach this way of eating through uh, Dr. Baker's platform at MeetRx. And I facilitate two mental health meetings here every week, not surprisingly. Uh, and what we see is, is the people who follow the basic directions, they get better. They just get better. And I would say out of the people who follow those directions, probably 80 to 85% of our clients that come through our platform, when they follow the directions, they all get better. I mean, it, it, it takes them all different different time time frames, et cetera. It's always specific to the individual. But people heal. They get better. They stop being the crazy person they never wanted to be. Mm. And, and that's another reason why I agree to do these things. It's not because the trip down memory lane's a good time, because it's not. But that's the only way you can convince people is to share that. Yeah. This is part it's of why. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, nah, go ahead, Case. No, 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 I'm just saying, like, it, that's why this conversation to me is so fun and important. Like, you and I are both coaches on the MeetRx site, and, you know, we've got two amazing doctors on this call that are doing the research and the randomized controlled trials and pushing for that. And there's also, like, bums like us. Like, I don't have a college degree. Like, I'm a, a nutrition coach. I don't get paid whether you eat donuts or vegetables or meat. I It doesn't make a difference. I am on the ground with people, and they pay me to get results, just like you. And it's it's just like the way you said, people just get better. I know that somebody is going to get better. I, I may not be able to explain exactly the mechanism. I might not have the best study to back it up, but I know that if you stick with this, you're going to see some pretty amazing results. And I think all of it is so critical. It's, you, need, you need some of all of that to be able to move this message forward and help people. So I, I think it's super cool for you to be a coach and, and you know not only have the experience yourself, but also share that message and teach other people. It's, it's quite incredible. It's the most rewarding work I'll, I'll ever do in my life. It truly is. When you see the light go off in people's eyes, you know, they're desperate, hopeless, and they book you. Oh, I heard you on such and such podcast. And uh, you, your story sang to me. And I'm just like, thank you, God, because that's that makes it all worthwhile. And, and those those messages you get, you know, from people who they've incorporated this way of eating and totally transformed their lives in a similar manner. It's just beautiful to watch. And, and I've been blessed to watch it at the platform facilitating those meetings. Cause I've seen, you know, people come into us at all stages of the journey, day one, day 55, you know, six months in, et cetera. It's just a joy to watch people get better as Dr. Palmer, you're very much appreciative of, I'm sure, and everybody else is as well. When you see people heal, you see the joy in their eyes. It's priceless. It's it's worth it's worth everything to me. It is, and uh, it's interesting because I was, you know, 
the end of the day, it takes people to change a field and to move something forward. It takes a lot of people. And so it, it's not about credentials anymore. It's about human bodies coming together, human souls, human minds coming together, working together for a greater purpose. And I wanted to, you know, the, the good news that I haven't explicitly said, but we have some um, some major donors who have come forward and we've got at least three controlled trials that are about to launch now um, in bipolar disorder, um, but also including schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Um, and uh, people are really, you know, interested in this and all sorts of people. Um, so, uh, and everybody's got something different to bring to the table. Um, and uh, and we all work together and we all do this together and maybe we can change a field. And the reason, you know, the reason I think it's so important and I'm so focused on trying to move the work forward is because, you know, I'm just one physician. I can't treat everybody in the world. Your two coaches, Nick is one soon to be right one soon to be physician in four years. Um, but we can't treat the world. We can't treat everybody. And so I am really committed to trying to prove to the rest of the medical community that, hey, guys, guess what? This is legit. We're not crazy. We're, we're not quacks. This is really working. And there's science behind it. And look at these controlled trials. And we got across our fingers that we can get people to do the intervention, that the intervention works. Um, but again, even with that stuff, it's all about a community. And even those trials are going to be a team effort. We may need coaches to be participating in those trials, to be helping people to try to maximize compliance. We, we, we're going to need dietitians to come forward with, you know, creative, innovative meal plans and, you know, recipes and other things and make sure macros are on board and make sure nutrients and micronutrients are being taken care of. But it's going to take a village to do this research and to really prove that it works and to get people to do the intervention. But the reason we're doing it is because there are countless people that number in at least the tens of millions. The, the World Health Organization prior to the pandemic estimated that 1 billion people on this planet currently have a mental disorder. The pandemic has made those numbers much worse. There's zero doubt about that. About the, the latest statistics from the CDC suggest about 40%, almost half of the US population meets criteria for a mental disorder right now. The world is suffering. And a lot of those people, pandemic is getting better, vaccines are working, numbers are going down, masks are coming off. A lot of those people are probably just going to get better on their own because the stress of the pandemic is no longer here. But a lot of those people aren't going to get better. Once depression gets a hold, it doesn't let go. 
And once people become crippled with, you know, depression, anxiety, substance use, the pandemic lifting doesn't just make it all magically go away. And so there's no question that, you know, we have a mental health pandemic on our hands now. The world does, not just the United States. The world has a mental health pandemic. There are lots of people who are going to be desperate for an answer. A lot of quote unquote mental symptoms are being attributed to these long haulers of COVID. A lot of them are reporting depression, anxiety, insomnia, brain fog, cognitive problems. They're going to be desperate for better answers. Dietary interventions may play a role for at least some of them. Is diet going to heal everybody? I'm going to go on record as saying probably not, because I think there are lots of things that can go into causing mental disorders. I can give one easy example. Thyroid, autoimmune thyroid problems can cause mental disorders. Doing a dietary intervention, as far as we know, does not automatically cure an autoimmune thyroid disorder. We, we don't think it does. I don't have reason to believe it does. So that person probably needs a diagnosis of their thyroid disorder and treatment for their thyroid disorder. Um, so I'm not one to say diet is going to cure the world of everything that ails us, but I think dietary interventions can play a really powerful, powerful role. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to give the impression to anybody. I think all of us agree Western medicine has its place. The things we can do with modern medicine, some of them are just incredible. Um, that said, to have a full spectrum of care for metabolic diseases, we also need metabolic treatments, which really includes diet. So the fact that these aren't offered as options, not the only option, but options is what really bothers me because it, it undermines the, like with, with mental illness, um, psychotherapy is really important. Medications are really important, but if you have an underlying metabolic deficit that could be treated with eating proper food or not eating improper food, we can get into that in a sec then it just undermines the therapy you're giving in the first place. Like you, uh, it, one way to think about it is like you almost need a, like you might be okay with a blank slate, but you need proper nutrition to get that blank slate. Maybe that's a poor analogy, but you kind of see with the big picture idea I'm going for that. It's, it's, it's part of a composite of care. I do. I, I, I think one of the challenges is that I usually don't refer to the work that I do as diet. I, I usually I usually do not say I put people on a diet. I usually say dietary intervention. And to me, the operative word is intervention. That I'm doing a treatment that ends up being a very powerful treatment. And I think that one of the challenges with most healthcare professionals is that they may hear what you just said, Nick, mm -hmm. but they'll, but they'll think to themselves, I tell people to eat a healthy diet and then it's up to them. I thought I, I was eating a healthy diet when I was eating special K and buckets of crazy. Yes. I tell them to eat a healthy diet and the U S dietary guidelines are the healthy diet. 
at, well, this is what this is what healthcare professionals are going to think. So we have to meet them where they're at. So they're going to they're going to think I'm telling people to do this healthy diet. And guess what? Most of the time they can't do it. How do I know they can't do it? Because they don't get results. They don't lose weight. They don't they don't reverse so their diabetes. They don't improve their cholesterol levels. So they must be doing it wrong. Sounds like blaming the patient a little bit. My intervention yeah, is not at all. Doctors would, right. doctors would never ever do that. I mean, you you talk about talk about obesity, and you know that is the thing that most people pair with diet is if you're obese, it must be your fault. Why? Because you're eating too much, and therefore. Whose fault is that? It's yours. It's your fault because you are the one eating too much. So what's the solution? It's not rocket science. You just have to eat less and then you'll lose weight and then it will all be good. That is the paradigm right now. That is what the majority of people on this planet including healthcare professionals, believe. They believe that in their soul. Mm -hmm. And I am the first to say that paradigm is wrong. It is just wrong and it is stupid and it ignores so much basic science and it yeah. ignores just the common sense observation that like, what the hell happened in the world then? <laughs> like, did everybody become lazy, gluttonous slobs? Is that why we've got the problem we've got? Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. I can't <laughs> calories out model. It's it's so deceptive too. Because it's like thermodynamics must apply to humans. And theoretically it's true, but we know practically it doesn't work. For a multitude of reasons that I would love to go into, but I, I, I want to keep the topic somewhat focused. And one more thing I wanted to ask was about healthy diets. And let's keep it focused on healthy ketogenic diets because, you know, as, as you mentioned, Chris, there's a spectrum of ketogenic diets from vegan keto to Mediterranean keto to carnivore keto. And I know that, you know, Brett's a big advocate of, it sounds like he works with, with Dr. Baker. Um, and then Jordan Peterson and his daughter, Michaela, she has a remarkable story. Um, that's how I started to hear about the the carnivore diet, but most people, so the average person listening to this, they might be able to say, okay, I'm getting on board with say like a Mediterranean keto thing. I'm getting on board with getting rid of the, the carbohydrates, um, maybe, but carnivore really, I think that sounds very extreme to people. And since that's been the focus of this conversation and because you, um, Chris, I don't think you talk about it, at least in professional circles, very much. The focus is on ketogenic diet, which is where the literature is, I wanted to get your thoughts on the appropriateness of a carnivore diet and, um, and also, you know, the relative benefits to a more animal based, be that fatty fish or beef, um, ketogenic diet versus one that is primarily plant-based. Cause I think you, you mentioned that you had an opinion on that earlier. The, um, yeah, I, so I will say, you know, there are different carnivore diets even, um, you know, so it, as soon as you start talking about any diet, diet or dietary intervention, there are so many variations to it. But 
one of the one of the you know in a way one of the simple pure and clean things about Brett's diet is that there is almost nothing to it. It's meat and water and salt. That's not there. We we don't have a whole lot of ingredients to worry about. So he's not consuming artificial sweeteners. He's not trying to get in keto chocolate bars. He's not consuming um, any carbohydrates. So he will he'll never miscalculate his carbohydrate count because he's always at zero. And so in a way, there are a lot of advantages to that diet because it's so simplistic and it eliminates, it's the ultimate, it's one of the ultimate elimination diets. It eliminates so many things that in theory could be problematic for different people. Um, I think that the, you know, the other thing is that the gut microbiome does come into play. Everybody's gut microbiome is different. Everybody's. And, you know, we, we have like over a trillion microorganisms in our guts on average. Maybe nine trillion, I think, is the huh? 39 trillion is the latest estimate I've seen. 30 trillion human cells, 39 trillion microbes. So that's a lot of microbes. And there are, there are, you know, that's not, they're not all unique individual species. There are tens of thousands of different bacterial species. We've got fungi, we've got viruses, we've got all sorts of things in there. Mm-hmm. And they're all in different proportions and ratios. And some of them... You know, the the microbiome research suggests, and I'm going to say it this way because I'm skeptical of some of this research, but some of the microbiome research suggests that there are some bacteria that are quote-unquote good or beneficial bacteria and some bacteria that maybe are quote-unquote bad bacteria. By eating a carnivore diet, you're basically depriving a lot of those bacteria of nutrients. Because most animal-based products are absorbed in your small intestines. They don't necessarily make it to your large intestines. Um, the water is being absorbed in your small intestines. Not So you're basically, in, in a way, restricting your calorie restricting your microbes. Now, if you have good microbes, that may not be beneficial. I'm going to be the first to say that. If you have really good microbes in your gut microbiome, you might want to be feeding them. And what do they like to eat most? Most people would say fiber. And that means fruits and vegetables because they chow down on fiber and then turn it into short chain fatty acids and all this other kind of stuff. But what if somebody had really a bad microbiome that you really don't want to be feeding, that you want to allow to kind of go on a diet and kind of, you know, have that bacterial load diminish. The carnivore diet in many ways would accomplish that. This is highly speculative because we have not done any rigorous studies on people doing carnivore diets. So, um, but 
but we know enough of the science and the theory about absorption of different micronutrients and macronutrients that what I said is probably true. Um, but at the end of the day, all of at the end of the day, I rest assured on this one overarching observation, which is that all of medicine is empirical. And what that means is that all of medicine, in all of medicine, we try something and we see if it works. If it works, we say, yay. If it doesn't work, we try something else. Now, now, as Brett said, and as I alluded to, that's certainly the case in the mental health field. We'll try a medication. If that doesn't work, we'll try another one. This by no means is limited to the mental health field. We do this in every other field of medicine. If you come in with high blood pressure, we'll try a blood pressure medicine. We'll see if it works. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, we're going to try another one. And we're going to keep trying different doses, different medications, different types of medications until we find something that controls your symptoms. We do the same thing in diabetes care. We do the same thing in oncology for cancer treatment. We might try a chemotherapy or a radiation. If it works, great, we're gonna keep doing it. If it doesn't work, we might change course. So all of medicine is trial and error, all of it, plain and simple. So when we think about dietary interventions, it's ridiculous that anybody suggests there should be one and only one diet for all human adults that will confer all sorts of health benefits across the board. So when people say that the one diet, the one and only one diet is the Mediterranean diet, everybody should do it. Um, that's silly. Uh, I, and so I don't believe that there is one and only one dietary intervention for every human being to get the health benefits they all need. I do see benefits in the carnivore diet. Do I think everybody needs to be on a carnivore diet to get the same benefits of a ketogenic diet? Absolutely not, because we have a lot of literature already to say that's not true. Um, some people can get significant health benefits from uh, an omnivore ketogenic diet and even... I, I know some people hate me for saying this, even a vegan ketogenic diet. Um, there are people who can stop their seizures with a vegan ketogenic diet. And for them, if that's their health goal is stopping their seizures, and if a vegan ketogenic diet works for them, great. For Brett, the, the, it's clear, it's plain and simple. He has had tremendous, health improvement, life improvement on a carnivore diet. He doesn't want to rock the boat. I can't really blame him. I would caution, like if you don't take a multivitamin or some other, I would just say, I would want, when people are on highly restrictive diets, I at least am going to wonder about some vitamin or mineral issues. 
and this is across the board. Vegans are known to have vitamin deficiencies, but there's reason to believe, and I've talked to some people who've done carnivore or even ketogenic diets who did not take a multivitamin for like two years. They started having some problems. They started taking a multivitamin and within a day or two, those symptoms went completely away. It's anecdotal, but we have reason to think that some people might develop vitamin or mineral deficiency. So it's just something to pay attention to and at least know. But um, but I think everybody probably has to worry about that because the, it's hard to say, well, exactly what diet is going to give you everything that you need. Who knows? It might not even be possible. There was a new article, I forget where it was published. I have it on my to-read list, but about the effect of domestication on the microbiome. And the microbiome makes a lot of nutrients. So we just don't live the life. There's no human on the planet. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's an extreme statement. But I would say, at least in America, there's no human that's living ancestrally properly. And we all have our different diatheses for deficiencies. So, yeah, I, I agree. It's not it's not cheating or inappropriate to be taking a multi, especially if you're a carnivore who doesn't like organ meats. I like I love organ meats, Brett. I don't know if you have liver, or kidney, heart. <laughs> no, I was I was taught by ten year plus veterans of this way of eating to only eat the meat that I genuinely crave, that I can afford, and that's exactly what I do. If I could afford it, I would eat filet mignon and bacon. But since I can't afford filet mignon three times a day, I eat lean ground beef and bacon. And uh, I don't take any vitamins, and I don't do it because I don't feel a need. I I don't feel I don't I've I've experienced exactly zero downside. Next month will be three years of living this way. Now I'm I'm not delusional. I listen very, it's one of the wonderful things about this way of eating is you're much more in tune with what your body's telling you. Uh, my intuition, I trust my intuition now implicitly because when I do it, it never fails me. And that's, that's down here. That's not up here. I've come to discover. That's a really interesting thing I find about, we hear this term all the time in, in dietetics about intuitive eating. But I don't feel you can eat intuitively until you remove the obscuring force of the cravings for ultra-processed foods and sugar. And so when you start eating in a very kind of primal way, like you are, then that intuitive eating capacity kind of unlocks itself. You're not the first person I've heard that says that. But uh, I think it's an important point to make because I do like the concept of intuitive eating, but it's kind of like the end point. To get there, you have to go on this journey that you've gone on. Um, I, yeah, I, it's, it's, the, it's interesting how the rules of nutrition change. I was very skeptical about carnivore, which means I had to try it because I have a rule that I will not really talk about any diet that I haven't tried. So I have done vegan as well and Mediterranean and low FODMAP and whatever. But um, I was doing testing along carnivore. And the one thing I knew is like, okay, I'm not getting any vitamin C. And when I try a diet, I'll try it for a while. So I did five months of carnivore. I'm like, my vitamin C is going to be low. So I'm gonna, I got spectrocell intracellular testing to look at the vitamin C levels in my cell. It was optimal to high. And I was tracking, I was getting 15 milligrams per day from like meats. And it's just the rules of nutrition change because of nutrient cycling, X, Y, Z. So there are questions that I would have as an interested person in a case like yours, like how's your bone density? If you're not having dairy, where are you getting some calcium? If you're not having like whole like sardines or something, and how is that going to track over time? It doesn't sound like you've had a fracture. I think there are questions that I think 
Chris, you probably would have similar questions. Well, and again, I, I come back to the common sense observation that all medicine is empirical. Mm-hmm. And if, if, you know, Brett, if I was treating you with a traditional psychiatric medication, I would know that that psychiatric medication might come with some risks for long-term side effects. And some of those long-term side effects can actually be really devastating. Kidney failure, liver failure, um, you know, thyroid problems, uh, obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all of those things can be side effects of different psychiatric medications. If I prescribe somebody one of those medications, I don't automatically panic them and say, you're going to develop kidney failure because 5% of people on this medicine develop kidney failure over 10 years. But I am going to be mindful and watch for it. I'm going to think about it. It's just going to be on my mind that if this person comes in really sick someday or starts having vague symptoms that are that are unusual and new for them, that we're gonna check it out. We're gonna try to figure out what might be happening to you. And could it be related to this treatment that I'm using? I would say the same thing for Brett, that it sounds like right now, you don't have any vitamin or mineral deficiencies because if you did and they were, and they were bad, you'd probably be having some problem or some symptom. <laughs> Does, does that mean it will be that you're good for the rest of your life if you live another 40 years, you make it to the ripe old age of 100? Does that mean if you remain carnivore for the next 40 years, you can't possibly develop a vitamin or mineral deficiency? No, because lots of things go into vitamin and mineral deficiencies. Age goes into it the way you excrete vitamins and minerals, the way your kidneys work, because you know your kidneys are holding on to things, your liver is holding, your cells are holding on to things. Um, you know, Nick, in your case, your body is clearly really good at holding on to vitamin C. It has it had more than enough. And you didn't need to consume any. It just kept what it had and kept selenium. I was eating. I was eating seven times the daily value for selenium, and I was actually low to deficient. That's a genetic thing. I can actually explain that. But just anyway, it's very individual. No, so well, so but that's precisely the point: is that everybody's different. Circumstances change. Circumstances are different, and so you just have to be mindful. You just have to pay attention. And the, you know, the one thing that I always say, uh, unfortunately, it's really a downer, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway, is that, you know, we're all striving for metabolic health or the healthiest diet, the healthiest lifestyle. And there's this assumption somehow, at least among some people, that like if, you re- if you're really doing it right, you're going to be perfectly healthy forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So if you get COVID, you're, you're going to be fine. If you get cancer, you're not going to get cancer. You can't get cancer because you're doing everything right. And the, the, unfortunately, those kind of simplistic views, I, I disagree with. I'll just go on record as saying I disagree with them. And why do I disagree with them? 
because of this really obvious common sense observation. We are all going to die. And when we die, that means our bodies are failing. Our bodies can't keep up anymore. And I don't care what diet you want to eat. I don't care how much you exercise. I don't care what vitamin or supplement you take. I don't care how stress-free your life is. I don't care about any of that stuff. Guess what? You're going to die. <laughs> and that means we are all on a path toward that ominous day. And between now and that ominous day, there is a trend that our health is going to decline. That's the trend. Obviously, all of our goal is all of our goals are to stay as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And that's what we're all doing. And that's what we're all struggling to do. But we we also just have to be realistic and honest with ourselves that. At some point, we are going to start developing health problems. And it's not because we were doing anything wrong. It's not because we were doing the wrong diet. It's not because we weren't taking a vitamin. It's not because we, you know, whatever. It's because we're all getting older. <laughs> and that is just going to happen. And so, you know, there's, you know, I, I won't say her name, but there's a really important leader in our community, low carb keto community who had, who has cancer, terminal cancer. I'll say her name because it's a phenomenal podcast that everyone should listen to. The one with Sarah Halberg, right? Yeah. But people should she was initially afraid to tell people about her cancer because of what everybody would say. She's not doing keto diet if she's got cancer. She must not be doing her diet right. She, there's something wrong. And it, there are some people in our diet community, unfortunately, that hold very extreme views like that. And again, I just wanna just reality check, we're all human. <laughs> reality check, we're all gonna die. And, and we're, it doesn't matter what we're going to die of. We're going to die of something. And so like these people who claim you're going to be invincible, you're going to be you know, whatever that just, please don't believe them. But on the other hand, I obviously am passionate and believe about the power of dietary interventions and lifestyle interventions to improve health, to maintain long-term health, all of it. But I, it's just so important that it's just so important that we stay credible. That's ultimately my message: that, that we stay credible and that we I not overpromise, like immortality. That, that's huge. I, so many people overstep in this space and damage the credibility, especially now during COVID. And um, I think you know it comes from a place of really having experienced something like Brett and being enthusiastic about it. But then it just damages the credibility of the space. So I couldn't have said it better. Um, that's a that's a great, I think, closing point. Yeah, that's um, great. I I, I want to be obviously respectful of everyone's time. This has been a great couple hours. But does any what what are, any closing comments? Um, I just pass it around the the room to see if anybody has any last words. 
Uh, <laughs> probably shouldn't say any last words after that. But we all go enjoy our various low carb meals, get up and have another beautiful day. <laughs> Brett, do you have anything to add? Like one simple thing you'd like to leave for the listener? You're not broken. You're not a mistake. Your mom and dad didn't have an error. You can heal. You need to seek out the proper dietary intervention for your own physiology, which is always specific to the individual. Don't be afraid to learn to trust your body. That's, that's beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Love that. Man, you guys, what an amazing conversation. Um, Brett, let's start with you. Where can people go to find your work? can find me primarily at uh, Instagram at thankful.carnivore. If you have questions about the carnivore way of eating, I'm happy to answer. I answer all my direct messages. You can also find me, I'm not quite as active, but I do some work on uh, Twitter at stickmanbleeding. It's S-T-I-C-K-M-A-N-B-L-E-E-D-I-N. Do not add a G. And uh, again, I, I answer all my private messages there as well. And, and I'm happy to speak and help anybody who's curious or has questions about this way of eating. That's amazing. Wow. Thank you so much. Dr. Chris Palmer, where can people find you and your work? Um, best place is my website, chrispalmermd.com. So chrispalmermd, all one word, dot com. I'm most active on Twitter. Um and you can follow me from my website or you can go on Twitter at Chris Palmer MD. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Dr. Nick Norwitz, again, the, uh, the boundless body, um, panel of, um, or sorry, the, um, what am I trying to think of the, 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 the chairs of the business are all going to meet again and they're going to fire me as a podcast host and hire you because you do such a great job, um, with these conversations. Where would you like people to go to find you and your work? Sweet Casey. Um, I'm at Nick Norwitz on Twitter is where I'm most active now. Uh, I have a little YouTube, which I'm trying to turn into like, I'll just read an interesting paper, get on and ramble about it. This morning was the HbA1c and, uh, and cardiovascular disease or subclinical atherosclerosis. Before that, I was having a little bit of a, a, a run back moment because it was microbiome and circadian rhythms, some new cool research there. But anyway. Ending Norwitz, and um, yeah, I look forward to more of these conversations. This was really a special, special conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Chris, for coming on, and Brett for being so open with your story. It it, uh, it really touched me, and I know it's going to touch everybody who listens to it. Um, thank so, you. So thank you so much for your time. Very yeah. welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Very well said. This was a really special conversation. I thank all of you um, for coming on. So thank you, gentlemen. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio.